Welcome to BSD Talk, number 68. It's Friday, September 22nd, 2006. I just have an interview today, so we'll go right to it. Today on BSD Talk, we're speaking with Bob Beck. So thank you for speaking with me today. No problem. All right, just to get started, could you describe who you are and what you do? I'm a long-time Unix guy, programmer, sysadmin, have fun with software and computer security and all sorts of fun stuff. I have a day job currently at the University of Alberta. I run my own consulting company doing security stuff, audits, training, etc., etc., with a partner, and I like to hack on OpenBSD. One of the projects that you do work on is SpamD. Could you describe mm-hmm. what that is and what it does? Well, in short answer, it's basically a mail, little mail deferral daemon. All SpamD does is, you know, you can make some sort of decisions about what SMTP connections go to it, and it can decide to either defer them by talking to the other end and giving it a 450 or a 451 response to tell the other server to try the mail again later, or it can decide to pass the mail through by adjusting a PF table. And generally, it's used for two things. It can be used for tar pitting uh, people you don't wish to talk to, and you can talk to them at, well, basically one byte per second. And if you're really mean, you crank your TCP window size down as well. The other thing that it can, of course, do is a pretty effective form of gray listing, where uh, if you've not talked to something recently, you defer the mail until it retries a few times, which can give you an opportunity to both catch it in a blacklist or do any other sorts of things or determine that it's really legitimate and should go through. Yeah, just recently, a couple months ago, put SpamD in front of our Exchange server because our Exchange server's built-in anti-spam engine from Microsoft wasn't doing that effective of a job. And SpamD just cut it right out. It was really quite amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear lots of stories like that. I have lots of people who give me bits like that, particularly Exchange Server administrators. At least in my case, a lot of this was, was prompted by here at the University of Alberta, we run a big, big mail. Well, not big, big. I'm sure there's listeners who run ISPs who run bigger ones, but um, we've got roughly 80,000 user accounts uh, in various stages of use and disuse, but uh, that's what we run Central Mail for. And SpamD, at least for us, with some reasonably aggressive gray listing, means that roughly, in in my estimates from looking at the log, about four to one uh, of any five SMTP messages, four of them are chucked out. And so we only end up actually processing through and delivering one out of every five, which makes a significantly reduced load on our main mail processors and particularly on our filtering because we uh, offer the ability to filter our mail to to our users. The features that I liked about SpamD was that it's not doing any statistical word analysis on the body or really anything complicated like that. Just memorizing, you know, an IP address, who it's from, who it's to, meant that I could use a very low-powered machine with almost no memory in it 
and it's it's not even breaking a sweat. Yeah, it's essentially designed to do that. One of the design goals of it was to, I remember several messages with Theo keeping me honest on this, was to make sure that we could, you know, on a spark station IPC, filter a big network. That was uh, what it was and continues to be one of its design goals. For that reason, the daemon doesn't fork. It's just a big old state engine that reads on a whole bunch of sockets and keeps track of the state of all its connections and talks to PF. The other advantage to what you're describing there is that it doesn't make any judgment about the content of mails. It really doesn't. It just does gray listing and a few other tricks. It makes judgment based on the nature of your SMTP connection to me. And we just want to make sure that you are standards compliant and you're not doing things that make it obvious that you're trying to evade anti-spam measures. Some of the early discussions of the gray listing technique talked about possible problems with pools of outbound mail servers that share a same outbound mail queue but may retry from different IP addresses. Have you found that to be a problem with SpamD? Generally not, although what we do recommend for most big adopters is there's actually a very good site out there called graylisting.org, and they have a master little whitelist that's published, which includes most of the big guys that have address pools. So, for instance, the big ones who come from large address pools, you can just pre-whitelist their domains, and you don't have to worry about it in general. Beyond that, generally what I found is that if the address pool isn't very large, typically the retry will eventually come through, the mail will just be delayed a little while, or if the outbound pool happens to share addresses with the inbound pool, if you're correctly running spam log D when you mail to them, those addresses will also eventually be whitelisted. We've occasionally found it necessary to do a little manual intervention, but put it this way, here at a large site, we maybe have to do that once every couple of months. And are there any knobs that you have to tweak within SpamD? Generally, I don't touch anything. We at OpenBSD, you've hit one of the, the pet OpenBSD terms, we hate knobs. There are a few knobs in it. You can adjust the various gray listing timeouts if you are doing gray listing. And you can adjust a few parameters such as how many connections you'll hold in reserve for gray listing if you're also trapping hosts. Beyond that, there's really not a lot that you generally want to play with for most people. Uh, if you do check the man page, there are a few options in there for those of us who are, for instance, a little more cruel. Those include things like scaling the TCP window size back on the SMTP connection to a very small value. So you can do things like, uh, well, you may talk to him at one byte per second. His sends go to you immediately, whereas you scale the window size back and he has to fragment, retransmit, fragment, retransmit, fragment, retransmit. So doing that to a spammer will test their TCP stack. However, it costs you bandwidth, so we don't, do, we don't turn that on by default. So for instance, whereas my own company server, I don't use that option in front of the U of A, well, I do. It's not that much of a bandwidth hit for us here. Yeah, I, I noticed when we set it up, the default behavior that we had was that for the first 10 seconds of the connection, it would stutter, talk really slow, and then go normal. And when I watch the logs fly by, I see all kinds of connections that drop after three seconds. Three seconds. Don't tell them. That's what all, all the spam software is using to detect tar pitting. 
So basically, I put that feature in by default with no knob to you know adjust it. It's just on by default. That was when in a couple of releases ago, as I watched the disconnection profile of people who get caught in various traps here. And what I was noticing is that when SpamD stuttered at somebody at one character a second, a huge majority of the connections out there would disconnect in under 10 seconds. And so I took a look at it and what it would cost, and I realized that, no, this was just really, really, really straightforward. A uh, short 10-second delay on the initial gray list connection, no real mailer will care about it, just thinks that's slow net. But any piece of spam software that's trying to detect tar pitting that way uh, looks at this and says, I'm being stuttered at and disconnects, which just means they go away and don't come back. They go bother somebody else. Another issue that I started to work with was dealing with SMTP auth. And BAMD can't be uh, a full SMTP daemon, but what features does it support? And if you're using features that it doesn't support, how do you recommend people work through that? With SMTP auth, the way I've always recommended people get around that is don't use SMTP auth on port 25. The way we get around that here with our users is our mail server will answer to uh, SMTPS on port 465 for people who are using crappy Microsoft clients. And it will also answer to the mail submission port on port 587. All SSL secured and all with authentication. Okay, And that's what we tell users to submit stuff to. So for mail submission, for relaying, we just say don't use port 25 and it's straightforward. If you have to use port 25 from certain places, you can also just exempt whole networks from even seeing SPAMD. So for example, even even though I run SPAMD on the menu of AMX, the U of A's nets are accepted from it by default. They never even see it. They just go right around it with a PF no, read, no RDR rule. Now there are other gray listing implementations out there, such as post-gray for post-fix and some SendMail milters. Why did you go with SpamD? Because every time I looked at at least SendMail milter, which we were running at the time, SendMail milter brought our machine into the ground. It was much more high load than SpamD is. And the other thing is SendMail milter has a little bit more of an aggressive implementation, or at least it did at the time, where a, once a tuple went through, so you have a from and a to and an IP address, once that tuple passed the gray list, only that tuple would get through, not other mail from that IP address. That would continue to be gray listed. And I found that to be, while it's still effective, was just a little too aggressive for a big U of a, big university site like us. We did much better with the once a site comes through, whitelist, the, whitelist by IP address, so everything comes through from that address. And that's also combined with the spam log D watching the outgoing connections and the incoming connections so that continued mail to and from a site keeps it in the whitelist. Could you describe the gray trapping feature of SpamD? Gray trapping as it sits right now is fairly nice. What this lets you do is to make use of old unused mail addresses at your site. And actually, I can I can give you a good one related to that, which I just loved. I gave an interview last release about uh, this to, uh, and I forget who it is, my apologies to the fellow who wrote the article. But I talked about gray trapping a little bit, and he put the article up on the net. And so the example I give is you use an unused mail address that somebody knows about is published out there on the net and the spammers are using. 
So, for example, if I decide that spammers are hitting the mail address bigbutts at obtuse.com, I go and I put bigbutts at obtuse.com in my spam trap list. So then, if a particular machine is coming through and mailing to a whole bunch of stuff at my domain, and it's going to retry and try to get through the gray list, but as soon as it hits bigbutts at obtuse.com, bang, he's blocked for 24 hours and he gets stuttered at, so he doesn't get through the gray list. So effectively, even though he might be sending 100 messages, but I've never talked to him before, as soon as he hits the one trap address, he's not going to get any of them through. The little side thing to that, when you talk about unused addresses or, or things spammers see, the actual traps I use on my home domain include all sorts of fake email addresses I've put in software documentation over the years, just as examples. But the Big Butts one was really, really amusing. So I'm going to diverge from you a bit. But you, I think your your listeners will like this story. I just picked Big Butts because, well, you know, I guess I'm a poet, uh, like you like to say. But I picked this as an example for the article. And before I even published the article, I put it in my trap list, just waiting to see. And sure enough, within a couple of days of the article showing up, I started getting spammers hitting it because they'd crawled the web, found something that looked like an email address, and started sending spam to it. And a couple months later, I just ran a little stat script on my machine and noticed, oh my gosh, Big Butts gets tons and tons of hits. Why? So I typed Big Butts at obtuse.com into Google and then realized what had happened. This nice little open BSD article in a BSD.IT journal out there on the Internet had been crawled, and, and this is... This is a case of, of crawlers multiplying it twice. The article had been crawled by a whole bunch of other people who crawl the web looking for content, and that's the porn site providers. So the porn site providers had gone in, crawled, found a page with a word they liked in it, big butts, and they promptly replicate the page content and hidden tag on their porn site to get people to Google and hit their porn site. Well, because they then replicated the content and hidden tag on all these porn sites, the spammers then crawled all the porn sites, picked up the address again, and were hitting it even more. It was great. So this is a great way to promote your gray traps by using porn. As Porn is the power of gray trapping. Anyway, I thought that was just really, really amusing. I've actually been a little scared to implement a gray trap out of fear that uh, a spammer from Hotmail or AOL or Yahoo, these places that generate all kinds of fake outbound accounts so that they can send a few messages will hit my gray trap and end up blacklisting some IPs at a legitimate company. Yeah, but see, then, then the only way they're going to blacklist an IP from a legitimate company is if that company is already not whitelisted. So, for example, if you're already regularly exchanging mail with people at AOL and Yahoo, all their servers are going to be in your whitelist anyway. So if a spammer forges an AOL address, that machine, the AOL does not get trapped. The machine he is forging it from gets trapped. And again, it's only for 24 hours. How is it working in the OpenBSD community? What's it like in that group? And Oh, it's an experience. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of fun. Generally speaking, it's a lot of fun. We tend to be a fairly intense group, but we like to make sure we have a lot of fun doing it. I mean, I can, can tell you all about the hackathons, about no sleep, about technical discussions, about waving our hands back and forth and screaming and yelling and jumping up and down. But in the end, what it really comes down to is the reason I think most of us stay involved in the project is it, it's fun and it works for us. What other projects are you working on? I get my fingers into a lot of stuff. I slack more than I should. Uh, unfortunately, that's 
the the result of work and two kids and other such things, I would love to be able to spend more time than I do. I am actively involved in rewriting bits and dribbles of SpamD, and I have a rewrite that I threw away because I didn't like it, and I've started over again. <laughs> um, and I, I've been actively involved in tearing apart lately bits of the SCSI layer. That's actually what I ended up spending most of my time at the hackathon doing, because one of the other things I use OpenBSD for regularly is with tape drives. And tape changer support was basically in most BSDs utterly broken. So we've made some effort to get in there and clean that up with some changes to the SCSI layer, some changes to the tape driver changer layer, and a bunch of changes to the SCSI changer driver layer, um, all in the kernel. I'm involved in fixes and bug testing and verification everywhere, release stuff. I run the, I run the orders website. Uh, it sits in with my company machines nicely hidden away in my basement uh, and a few other good things like that but I tend to kind of be all over the map um, I've had diffs in TCP I've had commits to lowcore.s and all sorts of fun things like that jack of all trades master of none how did you get started working with BSD or OpenBSD? Many, many moons ago, around 1995, uh, my business partner and I had a set of firewall software that we wrote and marketed and were using in our consultancy business everywhere. And part of the fun for us was to port it to everything under the planet. Uh, it included some kernel modifications and other such fun stuff. And at the time, with no money, I had a lot of effort to get get actual machines that I could use that were you know network capable and could run a real operating system at the time and I managed to get my hands on a spark station which ooh, uh, I've got another usable machine I can use for work and testing and uh, I went to install something on it and it's like what can I put on it well NetBSD and the NetBSD spark port was completely and utterly busted and it wouldn't work at all and then there was the open BSD thing. Ooh, security, that's up to my bag. And OpenBSD just starting, and okay, there's some stuff that went on between people. Well, I don't care about that. Does it work? And downloaded the Spark distribution, and sure enough, it worked. And I said, ooh, this was slick and actually worked. They'd fixed a whole bunch of bugs that I'd seen in previous things of NetBSD I'd installed. So I poked at the website, which was just Theo's personal site at the time, which at the time said, if you like this, phone this number, which was a pizza joint in Calgary. I live in Edmonton, three hours north. And uh, so I picked up the phone, phoned the pizza joint in Calgary, tried to order him a pizza, and they wouldn't take a credit card from Edmonton. So then I just decided to phone him and bitch. And so I went down to Theo, met him at a hamburger joint, and bought a CD. And that's when it started. So where you work at the university, are you considered a mm -hmm. crazy vigilante, or are other people there using OpenBSD? Some people who don't know me consider me a crazy vigilante, but most people who know better know I'll use it for what it's good at, uh, and I don't use it for what it's not good at. We actually have a lot of central services here that run on other things. I have lots and lots of Solaris. I have Linux. Uh, God forbid I have Windows. We have lots of AIX. We have all sorts of stuff, everything under the sun. So... I'm I'm less of a OpenBSD zealot than just a Unix guy. I mean, if you ask me what my preference is, yeah, you know where it lies. My laptop runs OpenBSD. My desktop runs OpenBSD, all that other good stuff. My kids' computers run OpenBSD but dual boot to Windows to play games. There you go. What kind of things do you bump into when you run OpenBSD as a desktop operating system? I don't run into anything, quite frankly. I'm very comfortable with it. But just 
to speak to it from a more like general usability standpoint as a as a general desktop, I found that in the last three or four years the the ports particularly the ports collection has just made you know made some astounding gains in terms of how easy it is to install other stuff and how well it works. Because I can remember looking at early releases of KDE and thinking, God, who would want to use this? And I still do, but that's just because my desktop is bare old FVWM and comes up like that, and I just don't use that because I'm kind of old-fashioned. But my kids run a full-blown OpenBSD 4.0 with all the ports and good stuff on there. They're my release testing guinea pigs for ports. It's my I do my little part to help the ports guys. And they've got a full-blown KDE install with Linux compatibility on, OpenOffice Linux binaries installed, as well as all the KDE Office tools, educational stuff, games, the whole nine yards. My daughter spends all her time talking to boys over game, the IR, the MS SN client. My son likes to play with graphic stuff, so he spends all his time fooling around in Blender. They're running all these big monstrous apps on an OpenBSD box and without any problem. And it's funny because both my kids, I've said, here's this, here's this. The only thing, the restrictions I put on what they can use is uh, the firewall at the front of the house uses pf.os and only lets Windows use port 80 because I'm not willing to deal with viruses and MSN and everything else. And beyond that, if they want to read mail and do other stuff, they do it on OpenBSD, and I hardly have to teach them anything with all this goofy stuff installed. They just boot it up, and they figure out how to use it, and it just works. They only boot Windows to go play Sims or Quake. Now, you mentioned that they were using 4.0, and I guess that was officially branched here just recently. Yep. And I guess the the one question that hasn't been answered yet is the song, the release song. And you were known for helping with one of the songs. Do you know anything about the 4.0 song? Yes, I do. Sounds like about all you're going to say, isn't it? <laughs> well, that, that, that's, the, that's the question you asked me. Yes, I know about the 4.0 songs. Uh, <laughs> if anybody wants to try to find it, find it before it's released, well, we certainly do have pre-orders up right away. And this includes actually with, with this release, we, we've turned on pre-orders for 4.0. Uh, which usually means that people, if they're paying attention, find if they do pre-order from the site, they usually tend to get their CDs well before the release date when we actually open up FTP. But uh, we're not only selling our, our usual OpenBSD4 release CD set, we've also got an audio CD, which is a compilation of all the release songs from 3.0 to 4.0, and it includes a little bonus track. I've heard both. They're pretty amusing. Don't have uh, any liquid in your mouth near your keyboard when you start listening to the last couple, would be my only advice. Have you been involved in penning lyrics for any more OpenBSD songs? Not nearly to the level I was in the one you're referring to, which I think is 3.5, which was the fish license stuff. Um, being a bit of a Monty Python one fan, I uh, took that idea and kind of got a little carried away and was mortified when they just used it. I'm actually really amazed at the production quality of those songs. They they don't seem to be an afterthought. Some people really put their heart into those things. A lot of people put their, their heart into it a lot. I know Theo comes up with a lot of ideas, and Theo always bounces ideas off me. We tend to, to think about that. But uh, for sure, the production quality and a lot of the other thought comes from Ty Samanka and Jonathan Lewis of the Plaid Tongue Devils. They're friends of ours in Calgary, and uh, Ty uh, usually is, is very, very much involved in all of the release songs and getting the artists together and getting it done. 
I, I've also sang on one of them. This was actually on uh, on the uh, we uh, ended up uh, being drug out to provide a beer chorus sound of different voices. So you ended up with myself, Ty, Jonathan, Theo, Peter Valchev, and my son Calvin, uh, all singing the chorus, so that we sounded like a whole crew of people in a bar. And one question I have to try and ask everybody: favorite text editor? Emacs or MG? I'm, I'm a confirmed Emacs addict, but I'm slowly switching to MG because Emacs is a bloated pig. Well, Emacs has always been a bloated pig, but actually, let's put it this way. I use Emacs for all my hacking. Uh, unless it's not there, I use MG, and uh, MG is the editor I use for my mail. However, if I'm sysadmining, I always type VI. Well, are there any other topics that you wanted to cover today? Not really, I guess, other than to say um, come take a look at us and make sure they uh, support the project. Go uh, grab a couple of CDs or some T-shirts. Yeah, I guess we should say uh, in the previous release there was a really big push to remind people that it does take money to make this project work. I don't think there's been as big of a push around the 4.0, but we should really encourage people to go and purchase CDs, make donations, and order T-shirts. And I think you'll you'll continue to see that push. You You really can't unfortunately stop doing that and I know I know Theo gets tired of it and it's a case of you know people feel bad about going out there cap in hand but I guess I I, I kind of say and I, I'll, I'll bleep your radio here I say both to that you uh, you look at, at the, the places using it us out there and you realize it's really not cap in hand we're we're doing something good a lot of other projects get stuff from us, and a lot of people use this product directly or indirectly. And, you know, it's probably a good thing for people to make sure they support it so that it can keep going and grow. Thanks again for speaking with me today. No problem. Thanks a lot. If you'd like to leave comments on the website or reach the show archives, you can find them at bsdtalk.blogspot.com. Or if you'd like to send me an email, you can reach me at bitgeist at yahoo.com. That's B-I-T. G-E-I-S-T at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening, and this has been BSD Talk number 68.